You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. And then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel with a loud voice proclaiming, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to uh, open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud, a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And when we read this in Revelation 5, when we read this, there are two questions that we must ask. Just two questions. First, do you see what the Bible says about Jesus? After reading this, after hearing what is said, have you given serious thought to the way the Bible describes who Jesus is? That Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is worthy, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see who he is? Do, do you see what the Bible says about Jesus? Second question. Do you believe he's real? 
Like, do you understand that the Jesus described in these verses is not a mere character from a story? He's not a mere figure from history, but the Jesus described in these verses is a real man. He is a living, breathing human being who in this exact moment has a heart that beats and eyes that see. He has hair and fingernails. And he has them right now because he has conquered the grave and ascended to heaven. And from that dimension right now at the Father's right hand, in all of his realness, he cares about what we're doing here. He knows that I'm talking about him right now. He knows that we have come here this morning to worship him. And he leans in toward this gathering. He, he leans in toward our being here together. He's not aloof to us. He's not unconcerned with our church, but he gives us strength. He gives us strength and he delights to receive all that we offer him, which comes through him and for him. Jesus Christ is real. Do you see what the Bible says about him? Do you see what the Bible says about Jesus and do you believe he's real? I want you to know, City's Church exists because the answer to those two questions is yes. Okay. Going back at the end of 2014, we were, City's Church, we were commissioned out as a new church plant from Bethlehem Baptist. Which means that this year, we are now entering our seventh year as a church and the pastors believe that this is the time, both consciously and practically, this is the time that we go from having been a church planted to becoming a church rooted, just like Pastor Kevin said. And in case you're wondering, the word rooted and rooted means the same thing, all right? <laughs> all right, it's time to be rooted. We believe that. And so Rooted is the name of this new sermon series. And it's the name of this, as you can see, this larger initiative that we're doing as a church that involves three parts. And so what I wanna do is I wanna run through these three parts quickly. Here are the three parts. First, and this is most important. First is we want our covenant members and our soon to be members to freshly embrace the vision of City's Church. And this is, this is the most important part. Thanks, brother. So one way to say it, if church planting is like high adrenaline, you know, Red Bull drinking kind of work, then becoming rooted is steady, deep, patient, purposeful kind of work. It's like growing an oak tree, okay? If you can imagine an oak tree. We've talked a little bit about trees. Imagine an oak tree for a moment, okay? Oak trees are solid and full and enduring and the crown of their branches are expansive, okay? And it's a difference maker. Oak trees are difference makers. You can see them, okay? You know that they're there. But now the roots of an oak tree, which are mostly unseen, they stretch out 
seven times the width of its crown. The roots run deep so that the branches reach far. Okay. And that's what we want to do. We want to dig in deeply to what God has done here and where God has placed us. And we want to, digging in deeply, we want to dream forward about our difference making branches in the Twin Cities. This is embracing our vision, okay? And then secondly, we wanna invest in our footprint. God has given us this historic property right here in the heart of the Twin Cities, just a few miles from the state's capital, surrounded by colleges and universities, embedded beside the most walkable street in Minnesota. And we want to steward well the blessing of this building, which means that we want to renovate this building to maximize this building for our ministry and to make it a lighthouse for the glory of Jesus. And then third, after we embrace the vision and invest in our footprint, we commit to give financially to our church. And we don't want this commitment to be a single isolated rally sort of thing, but we really want to build a culture of generosity at City's Church. We wanna, we wanna talk about money without wincing, right? We, we believe, we want to truly believe that giving is about what God wants for us, not from us. It is more blessed to give, Jesus says. He says that. It's more blessed to give, which means that giving is about joy. It's about the joy of God, who is the cheerfulest of all givers. And it's about our joy in God because we have been overcome by his grace. I want that for us as a church, okay? So these are the three things that we're praying for and that we're asking of you in this Rooted series. Embrace the vision, freshly embrace the vision, invest in our footprint, and then commit to give. And in the series, there are six sermons. So next week, we're gonna look at our corporate life together as a church. And the next week, Pastor David Mathis is going to lead us to think about what it means that we're called to the Twin Cities, that we're called to our neighbors here. Then we'll spend a couple, uh, a couple weeks looking at gospel-centered generosity. And Pastor Joe will preach one of those sermons. And then we'll close the series by talking about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus here and now? What does it mean for us to be rooted? And that's the preview of the series. What about today? Okay. What about today? Well, for the rest of our time today, I want to talk about the glory of Jesus in your soul. What I want most for us in this new season and what I've prayed for the most is revival. I want us as a church, as members of this church, I, I want us to be assured and overwhelmed by the power and love of God. That's what revival is. And it starts with personal revival. It starts with the glory of Jesus and your soul, okay? The glory of Jesus and your soul. That's the most fundamental reality I can imagine. And so before we talk about our church together, before we talk about our vision and the details of what we long for God to do in us and through us, I want to remind you this morning, I want to remind you that Jesus is owed all blessing, honor, glory, 
and might forever and ever. And your soul was made to last forever and ever. And in the great perspective, okay, in the great perspective, nothing else really matters. It doesn't. You were made, brothers and sisters, you were made by God to experience and to show that Jesus Christ is the supreme satisfaction of your soul. That's it. Like, that is the meaning of life. You were made to experience and to show that Jesus is the supreme satisfaction of your soul. And because that's true, this morning I want to answer two questions. First, why is that the case? Why? And then two, what does that look like? Why is that the case? And what does that look like? And I know we're into it now, but I want to stop for a minute because I want us to pray together and ask for God's blessing um, on this series, but also on our time together in God's word. So would you pray, pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this morning and for this new season in the life of our church. We ask in this moment that you would guide us according to your will and that you would speak to us through your word even right now in this moment, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, two questions. Here's question one. Question one, why should Jesus be the supreme satisfaction of your soul? Answer, because Jesus is worthy. Or we could say it this way, Jesus alone has the rights to the highest place in your affections. Or I like to say it this way, you should love, you should love Jesus more than anyone or anything else in all the world because Jesus deserves it. Just look at Revelation 5. John's vision here in Revelation 5 continues from chapter 4. The one who is seated on the throne is God the Father. And we read here in verse 1 that he has a scroll in his right hand. And it's sealed with seven seals. And this scroll is very important. In fact, the rest of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 22 is really all about the contents of this scroll. Basically, this scroll contains the covenantal promises of God to send final salvation for his people and judgment on his enemies. The, the, think of this scroll as like the blueprints for the rest of history, okay? This is important. But the suspense of chapter five is that no creature is found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now we might imagine that this means something like the lid is too tight, right? That might be how we think about it. I don't know, I, I've imagined that that this angel here in verse two, who's a strong angel, he's a strong angel in verse two. I've imagined that he's like walking around heaven with this scroll, like it's a jar of pickles, you know? And like he can't find somebody who has the muscles to open the scroll. Have you guys ever thought about it that way? Maybe you imagine that? Okay, if you think about it that way, like I do, that's not exactly right, okay? Just want you to know, that's not exactly what's going on here, all right? What is needed to open the scroll is not strength, 
is worthiness. And it's not merely worthiness to open the scroll, but it's worthiness to enforce the contents of the scroll, which is the ultimate plan of human history. See, the opener of the scroll is the executor of the plan. And so this angel on behalf of the divine council says, hey, is there anybody out there who has the authority to open this thing? Is there anybody out there, anybody in heaven, anybody in earth, under the earth, is there any person out there who actually has the authority to do the things written in this scroll? And there's nobody. Which means this is a, this, this is a distressing situation because everything is riding on the contents of this scroll being put into action. This is the rest of the story. This is the rest of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And there's nobody, nobody who can execute the scroll. And so John starts to weep because he knows, he knows that unless somebody can take this scroll and put this scroll into action, we're all ruined. Like if this world, like if this world, like with all that's going on in, in this world right now, if this is all that's left, we should all be weeping too. But then one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this, of course, is Jesus. And he is worthy to open the scroll and execute salvation and judgment because he is the lion that conquers. He has the authority and power. That's verse five. But then the camera turns in verse six. And in the middle of this heavenly crowd, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, there's a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So there's a lion and a lamb. Same guy. This is Jesus. The lion shows us that Jesus has conquered. The lamb shows us how he conquered. And it's this mashup of images. The lamb is standing, standing as though it had been slain. And so this is, a, this is a standing slaughtered lamb. And he's strong. He has seven horns and seven eyes. And he sees everything that goes on in the entire world. And he goes with this authority and power, he goes and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne and the creatures and the elders fall to their faces before this lamb and they all sing. And do you know what they sing? Do you see what they say? They say worthy. He's worthy. This conquering lion who is a slain lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And how? Because he was slain. Because he died an atoning 
death. Jesus was the Passover sacrifice, and not just for the people of Israel, but he died to rescue a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The eternal purpose of God in the church has been realized in Jesus by the shedding of his blood. This red-soaked lamb has created a colorful kingdom of royal priests who have fellowship with God and who reign with God like Adam and Eve were meant to do, but even better because Jesus has overcome sin and death. He has conquered. And what do you say to that? What do you say to that? Not just you, not just you. What about the angels? Let's get the angels in here, okay? Angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What about every creature too? Let's get the creatures in here. Let's bring them in. I'm talking about every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Every creature that has ever existed. Angels, creatures, all of them. Let's bring them in here and what do they say? They say worthy. Jesus is worthy. And so when I say that Jesus should be the supreme satisfaction of your soul, when I say that you should love Jesus more than anyone or anything, this is why. He's worthy. It's because he is God become man. It's because he died and was raised. It's because he has sacrificed and conquered. Jesus has all authority, all power over everything in creation. And everything in creation, all these things, from the angels, all the angels around his throne, to all the sea life in the depths of the ocean, they all declare that Jesus is worthy. He deserves and possesses every good thing there is or could be. And so, yes, he deserves your heart. He deserves to be the supreme satisfaction of your soul. And the Bible has a lot to say about your good when he is. Okay? Jesus and his benefits mean your eternal blessing. You feel that? Jesus and his benefits, it means your eternal blessings. Jesus affects good things for you. And all those effects, all our blessings in respect to his rule, whatever we receive by his spirit and grace, whatever we learn from his word, whatever benefit we believe, expect, receive by his sacrifice and intercession on our behalf, our hope in them all is terminated on Jesus himself. Our faith, church, is in Jesus himself and who he is and in what he's done. The whole Christian life, okay, the whole Christian life comes down to this. It's not how Jesus makes you feel, but it's the fact that Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. He deserves, he deserves to be the supreme satisfaction of your soul.
He deserves it. All right, that's number one. That's the first question and answer. Now let's focus on the second question and answer. What does that look like? What does that look like? Okay, question two goes like this. What does it look like if Jesus is the supreme satisfaction of your soul? Answer, humble joy. Now, why am I saying that? How is this biblical? What do I mean? All right, well, humble joy is the way that I describe Paul in Philippians 1. And we're going to close here. So go ahead and take a Bible, if you have one, and turn real quickly to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 19. But Now Paul starts in verse 18 by saying that he rejoices, okay? Because Jesus is proclaimed, Paul rejoices, and he will rejoice, he says. So this is joy, right? Clearly, this is, this is joy. Paul will rejoice, but why? Verse 19. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Now, this is one of the clearest places in Paul where he describes what he's all about, okay? This is his goal. This is his eager expectation and hope, which means this is Paul's greatest passion. His greatest passion is that he not be ashamed, but verse 20, verse 20, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that word for honored here, it means to be magnified or to be glorified. Paul wants Jesus to be seen for who he is. He, he, Paul wants to witness to the glory of Jesus, whether by his life or by his death. Now, how does Paul do that? Right? How, does he, how does he do that? He explains in verse 21. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, how does that work? How does Paul's living or dying magnify Jesus? Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So if Paul lives to live as Christ, which means fruitful labor, it means that he will continue his ministry for others' progress and joy in faith, verse 25. And the result of that is that others will glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if I live, I magnify Jesus by serving others' joy in him. 
And if I die, I magnify Jesus by my joy in him. Because I consider getting more of Jesus far better than anything this world can offer. That is how death is gained. Because I'm losing everything in this world. I'm losing everything in and of this world, everything. You cannot take it with you. It's over. It's done. But I get Jesus. I get more of him. I get his nearness. I get his unhindered presence. And so you put everything in and of this world on this side. And then you put Jesus over here on this side. Jesus is far better, right? Jesus is far better. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when Jesus is the supreme satisfaction of your soul. It looks like joy here in the joy of others' joy in God as we anticipate the greater joy in Jesus yet to come on the other side of death. A couple weeks ago, we buried my grandfather. I flew back to North Carolina to stand outside with my family and to look at the casket, which was under a tent and beside a hole in the ground six feet deep. We're standing around a six foot hole in the ground. I don't know when the last time has been for you, when you've stared into a six foot hole in the ground, will that be gain for you? Will you experience greater joy on the other side of death? Now, I call it humble joy for a reason, okay? Humble joy. I recently read that according to a new study on religion, an increasing number of Americans believe in afterlife, okay? In this one study, they say that 80% now, 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife. 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife. And what's fascinating about that number is that it does not match the declining number of those who believe in God. So the number of those who believe in God is decreasing while the number of those who believe in an afterlife is increasing. And nobody knows exactly why that's the case. But what's going on there? No one knows exactly why. But one theory is that it has to do with our society's entitlement mentality. It's the idea that you are owed something for nothing. I am owed something for nothing. It's the idea that we deserve every good thing as the world defines good 
And that if that's what the afterlife is about, then I must be getting it, right? If, if the afterlife is about me getting good things, well, yeah, I believe in an afterlife. Now we know that's not right. And that, that kind of swagger, that kind of, of triumphalism has nothing to do with Christian joy. Christian joy is humble joy precisely because we know it's not joy that we're entitled to. And sometimes the script that God writes for us does not include good things as the world defines good things. Sometimes the script will mean cancer. Car wrecks, car wrecks, coronavirus. As I have been thinking about that image of the six-foot hole in the ground, as I've been thinking about that six-foot hole in the ground, it occurred to me, I have eight children. It occurred to me, that I have no certainty that I will see any of my children graduate high school. I have no certainty that I'm gonna to live to see any of my children grow up, get married, have a family. And you know what? God does not owe me that. Hey, hey. He doesn't owe us anything, nothing. He doesn't owe us a thing, but he promises us himself. Is he enough for you? City's Church, I want him to be enough for us. Just let that land, okay? I want Jesus to be enough for us. What I want for this soul and for your soul is for Jesus to be our supreme satisfaction. Why? Because he's worthy. What does that look like? It looks like to live as Christ and to die as gain. Humble joy. And that's what brings us to the table. At this table, each week, with humble joy, we remember the death of Jesus for us. That Jesus, the lion and the lamb, the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins. And he looks at you and he sees everything about you. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your brokenness and all of your wounds and all of your sins. He knows about all of your unloveliness and he loves you. 
he loves you by his grace. And so this morning, if you trust in Jesus, if you embrace him by faith, we invite you at this table to give him thanks. The pastors are gonna come. We're gonna serve um, the elements to you. If you trust in Jesus, you can just put your hand out like that and we'll drop it in your hand. Uh, the bread, the body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Uh, let us serve you.